Hey friends, welcome to my podcast, Straight Talk with Salim. I believe the word of God is truly the lamp unto our feet and a guiding light for our path. And a majority of the church neglects this guiding light because it's too difficult to comprehend. Well, God has given me a hunger to study the Bible and a passion to share it with you. My friends, if we don't understand the word, how can we apply it to our lives and actually live in obedience to Jesus? So join me now as we walk through God's word and learn the essentials of living a Christ-centered life. Welcome back to Straight Talk with Salim, week four of this Revelation series. And I, I hope, again, that you all are be really beginning to settle in and, and that you're being challenged um, as, as much as I've been. I mean, this week, we're moving into part two of the letter, letters to the churches. And there's so much gold here. And, and I would encourage you to just, again, get your pen, get your paper, and take some notes. Um, I, I would encourage you to, as you're listening to this, to think about yourself, your place in the church. You know, think about your church and where you gather. Not to be critical. Um, you know, the last thing we want to do is is be critical. Um, but we want to we want to look at ourselves. We want to examine ourselves through this lens because you got to understand Jesus is addressing these seven churches and he, he's, a, he's addressing us. This letter, remember, this letter was written for the people in 96 AD, for the church in 96 AD. It was written to them, right? But we can't forget that it was also written for us. And it's going to be written for the church that, that comes after us. And so we've got we've to take this serious. So let's dive right in. And as we open to Revelation 3, you know, we now move into uh, these final three churches that Jesus addresses in his letters. And we start with the church in Sardis. And in examining this text, you know, we're, we're forced to consider what it means and, and what it looks like to have uh, this form of godliness or, or being alive, but not actually being alive. And what does this mean? Well, let me ask you this question. What would things look like if Satan just took over the town or he took over a city? I mean, ponder this. Our imagination tells us it would be mayhem on a massive scale, right? I mean, there'd be widespread violence, deviant sexual behavior, maybe porn in every vending machine. I mean, churches would be closing down. You know, worshipers would be dragged off to city hall. I mean, this would be the, the picture of what it would look like if Satan took over a city in our minds. But my friends, I think that's far from true. To be honest, it would look different. I think maybe all the bars and the pool halls would be closed. Maybe porn would be banished. Pristine streets and sidewalks would be occupied by uh, tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. You know, the kids would answer, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. The churches would be full on Sunday where, where Christ is not preached. It would be Sardis. It might be your church. It would be a reputation for being alive, but actually being dead. Washing the outside of the cup so it looks good, but being absolutely filthy on the inside. And if we're honest, 
You know, we long for this city that we just described. Don't we? I mean, don't we long for the clean streets and the absence of porn and the absence of swearing? I mean, we want to see people who have manners and who are kind and speak to each other. It would be nice to see children who respect adults. We all want churches to be full. I mean, come on, guys. We, we long for this, don't we? And the sad thing is, is when we hear only Christ wasn't preached, that really doesn't bother most of us. Truth be told, many of us would reason like this. Well, as long as the churches are full and as long as the people are decent, that, that, that's good. Because after all, isn't that the goal for us to behave and, and to be decent? The answer is no. That is not what church is about. We are about something more significant than that. We are not about just washing the outside of the cup. And see, many of us want to get back to leave it to Beaver. We want to get back to the time when there was white picket fences where where mothers who cooked and cleaned and smiled when fathers got home and they actually had dinner on the table. We want to get back to the glory days of the 1950s because we actually believe that was a good time before all hell broke loose in our culture. But ask yourself, was it really good? I mean, my friends, there was still war. There was still death and disease and scandal and sexual perversion and hate. And the reality is, is some things will never change. And Satan had his grip on culture then and, and, and he will until the Lord comes and puts him in his place. And so do you really still want the 1950s when, when things were good? Do you still want Leave it to Beaver? I mean, friends, the 1950s was Sardis. This error everyone wants to go back to was dead on the inside, but looked good on the outside, just like the church of Sardis. And so let's open to Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read this quickly before we break this down. This is the message from Jesus to the church in Sardis. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has a sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do, that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent And turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief in the night. Yet there are some in the the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And all who are victorious will be clothed in white. And I will never erase their names from the book of life. But I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. So verse 1, write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has a sevenfold spirit of God in the seven stars. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. So up to this point, we hear Jesus saying there are some good things, but notice in Sardis, Jesus doesn't really talk about any good things. I mean, he goes right to the point with this church. The pattern in this letter is the same as the others. We have the location identified. 
we have the Lord identified with characteristics from chapter one and the characteristics that relate directly to the, the correction being brought in the church. We have the statement of his sovereignty and his omnipotence. We have the statement that this is the word of God. And if we are going to understand this church, we must compare what we know about Sardis and about Christ and about the crisis in the church. First, Sardis is located 50 miles east of Smyrna. And Sardis was the ancient capital of the kingdom called Lydia that fell to uh, Cyrus the Great of Persia. There was a large, wealthy, and powerful group of, of Jewish, Jewish exiles. There was a very large synagogue found there in the, in the second century. So we must point out that Sardis is one of the two cities, the other being Laodicea, that were condemned the most harshly of the seven cities, of the seven churches, and today are completely uninhabited. Two of the most wealthy cities then and completely uninhabited today. Sardis ho hosted many uh, pagan cults and there wa was worship of, of these cults. Worship of Greek gods and goddesses. So here's the situation in Sardis. Just like uh, the, the church of Jesus being established it's being established in the midst of, of pagan cultures that are in direct opposition to, to biblical Christianity. I mean, this ultimately leads to persecution, right? We know that, that it is this persecution that has brought John to the island of Patmos where he's writing this. I mean, he was exiled for preaching the gospel, preaching the word of God. So one of the overarching themes that we see in all the letters to the churches is this. Though you do some good things, you, you do this wrong. And what they do wrong is so critical. For instance, the church of Ephesus had lost their first love. They lost that first principle, the, the proclamation of the gospel. They were willing to clean house within, but when it came to their witness on the outside of the church, in order to avoid persecution, they were silent. We also see in Thyatira, this Jezebel-type woman that led many into idolatry and sexual immorality so they could get good jobs. So they compromised to avoid persecution and to avoid being ostracized. In Sardis, it's, it's a bit different. You have the presence of, of pagan Roman culture, but not to the same degree. But you also have a, a wealthy, powerful Jewish community. And why is this significant? When Roman, Roman Empire, in the Roman Empire, you had legal religion and you had a legal religion. When the Roman Empire would take over cities, there were religions that were deemed legal or illegal. You could be punished by death if you didn't stay in the line with, within their rules. And, and here's the deal. Judaism was fully legal. And Christianity, as long as it was considered a sect of Judaism, was also legal. However, when it was recognized that Christianity was not a sect of Judaism, that was a problem. I mean, it was a problem that these Christians would come in and pr profess their faith, that Jesus was Lord. And this was in direct contradiction to the statement that Caesar is Lord. I mean, real Christians would not partake in these feasts, in these, the, the idol worship of Rome. And for that, they were persecuted and crushed. So what does all this have to do with Sardis? When you follow Jesus in this culture, and you, you follow the biblical Jesus, you stand out like a sore thumb. And because of that, you will be persecuted. 
this stands today and it did then. And let us not forget this large, wealthy, powerful Jewish community that is safe to practice their faith and just fits right into society. Sort of like Catholics today. So sorry if I offend you, but I mean, I don't see Catholics really being persecuted like biblical Christians. Ones that truly stand up for truth, actually open the Bible for themselves and obey what Jesus says. I don't have to go to some person and pray to that person. I go straight to the throne of God, the, the throne of God that, that Jesus, you know, he with his death, the veil was torn and I had access. So th th this is, this is the deal. This leads to two things in Sardis. First Sardis is, is going to be filled. The Sardis church is going to be filled with much more uh, polite religious clientele. In other words, people of faith were soft. Second, because Judaism and Christianity had some things in common. Because they had things in common, Christians and Sardis could blend in and go under the radar because they would just blend in with others. You see how dangerous this is? I mean, what we see in this city is a church that will be much more palatable to culture. You see what the church of Sardis was in danger of? I mean, since when can you follow Jesus and be palatable to the world. Guys, you, you can't. 1 John 2 tells us being friends with the world makes us what? Makes us an enemy of God. I mean, do I even need to say anything else? And here's the deal. Sardis was a little too friendly with culture in order to preserve and protect themselves. My friends, this is a no-no. Next thing I want to point out is we must look at the portrait of Jesus in this verse. The one who has the spirit of God and the seven stars. I mean, what does that mean and why is this significant to this church? Remember, when we read the scriptures, everything is intentional. Every word, every line, every sentence, every phrase. So there's significance here in the way that Jesus is described. The sevenfold spirit is the completeness and the fullness of the spirit of God. Jesus has the full spirit of God. What are the seven stars? I don't know. Seven angels of the particular church, churches? Is it, is it the pastors of the particular churches or is it the spiritual representatives of the church? I mean, I, I lean more to think that it's the ones maybe leading the churches, but I'm not positive. But if we turn to Zechariah 4, 1 through 7, again, Old Testament prophecy is very, very important when we're reading the book of Revelation. But turn to Zechariah 4, 1 through 7. This is important to remember this charge against Sardis. You have a reputation that you are alive, but you are actually dead. That's the charge. It is the one with the fullness of the spirit making this announcement. So what do these lampstands mean, my Lord? It meant the same to Zechariah as it does to the church of Sardis. It is not by force nor by strength, but my spirit. Nothing will stand in his way. What are they trying to accomplish in Sardis? They're trying to go along to get along. They're trying to not be persecuted. So here Jesus is given a promise and a warning to this church. Corporately, he's saying because of their activity as a church, he will come like a thief. And to the individuals that are following him and walking in purity, they will do what? They will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 2, it says, wake up, strengthen what little remains for even what is left is almost dead. I find your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. So what do we see in this church corporately? 
Well, why does Jesus refer to this church as being dead? Well, Jesus tells them that he has not found their works complete in the sight of his father. What is he referring to? When you look at the message to the other churches, it seems pretty obvious. Not finding their works complete is him finding them not proclaiming the gospel as they should. I mean, look at what Jesus says to the ones who he finds doing right. Well, what will he do? He will confess and announce before his father and angels that they are his. What did Jesus say during his earthly ministry about those who deny him on earth? Deny me here on earth and I will deny you in front of my father. This is the point. People in this church were compromising. Their works are incomplete because uh, they are not confessing Christ in the midst of the culture in Sardis. They want to be liked. They want to be appreciated. They want to be accepted. They have shifted the way they share in order to get along in life. And let's look at a good example of how we are to preach the gospel and how we are never to compromise. Turn to Acts 17. Let's look at the example of Paul. Here, Paul and the guys, they go into Thessalonica and they find a Jewish synagogue and they go in reasoning with them and preaching the whole counsel of God, the true gospel, no compromise. And what happened? Well, it says some Jews got jealous and angry and they formed a mob and sent the city into an uproar and they attacked the house where Paul was teaching. Let's look at what happened when Jesus preached to, to Jews as a Jew. What did they do to him? They killed him. I mean, my friends, how many times was Paul beaten and ran out of town? Why? Because they preached the true gospel. And when you do this, there will be confrontation and persecution. You're essentially coming to people and telling them that the outside of the cup may be clean, but inside you're filthy. Go tell somebody that and, and see how they respond to you. I mean, look at Acts 17, the, the end of Acts 17, 16 through 34. Imagine this scene. So Paul goes into Athens by himself to a place that knows nothing but their idol worship. And Paul comes in and tells them that they have it all wrong and they're worshiping false idols. I mean, the story doesn't really, when you read it, it doesn't really come out that way. But essentially, that's what Paul was doing. He comes in and says that the true God doesn't appreciate their idols and he's not okay with what they're doing. Guys, Paul wasn't trying to make friends. Paul never held back. This is why he was constantly running for his life. Paul was just passing through. He knew he was a citizen of heaven. He didn't belong to this world. So imagine what it was like for this wealthy Jewish community who wasn't passing through, who lived in this city and they, they had to stay put. Imagine how hard it was to stay true to Christ when culture was pushing you in the opposite direction. And imagine what would happen to the Christians in Sardis if they spoke the gospel like Paul did. They would be crushed not just by the Jews, but the pagan Roman culture. So what did they do? They backed off. They began accepting the narrative. They weren't offending the Jews or Greeks because their works were incomplete. And to be honest, the church is probably growing and seems alive, but Jesus tells them otherwise. He says, you're dead. You're a lie. Dead because the whole counsel of God is not here. Dead because you're preaching not to offend people instead of preaching the whole counsel of God, which is always offensive to people. Jesus warns them like he did in the New Testament that he will come like a thief in the night. I mean, this refers to the second coming. This reminds us of Matthew 7 when Jesus tells us that many will say they were following Jesus, but he's going to cast them out. This is an echo of what we see here. You had a reputation of being alive, but inside you were dead. 
mean, can we relate today? Any of you listening to this compromising the gospel? Any of you afraid? Any of you accepting this narrative that's being pushed down your throat today because you're afraid of what what someone's going to say to you? Maybe you're afraid to speak out and tell a sinner that they're a sinner because you'll be ostracized. My friends, ask yourself, is that really loving people? When you allow sinful actions to, to, to just go without being dealt with? Guys, if you're doing this, this is a warning. And it's not from me. It's from Jesus, the king of the, the, the universe, the one who was and is and, and is still to come. King Jesus, who will come and judge this world. Verse three, go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. So again, here Jesus is calling the church to repent. He's talking about the church corporately. He's referring to the overall state of the church. Notice what Jesus says to the church, wake up. He's calling this church to live and respond differently than, than that of culture. Be alert. Know that you're not invincible. Wake up from your slumber and your arrogance. I mean, this church in Sardis thought that because they were growing, that they were doing something right, when in actuality, their growth was probably a sign that they weren't doing something right. I mean, think about this. The church should be one of the most terrifying places on earth. Why would any broken sinner, and that's you and me and every other human being on this planet, ever feel comfortable coming into the presence of a holy God? Think about that. I mean, how counterintuitive is that? Guys, we must recognize that there is always a tendency for sin to spread like yeast. I mean, look at our kids. You take them around godly people and you sit there just wishing that godliness would rub off on them, right? I mean, don't we want that? But gosh, look, take them around some evil people and look how fast that sin rubs off. We as humans are just bent towards sin. And so when you're in a church full of compromise, here's what happens. Here were the, the Christians in Sardis. The Romans liked them. The Jews liked them. And they had favor in the community and the church was growing. Imagine if someone stood up and said, the reason for this is because you aren't preaching the whole gospel. You are preaching a watered down version to be accepted by all. I mean, can you imagine how many would think that was crazy? On the outside of the church, it, it, it's looking successful, but there is a reason for this. And it's usually because the spirit is not present. I mean, just look at Joel Osteen's church. Packing up, packing out of 40, 20, 40,000 people in a, in, in a gym or whatever he has or an arena. Guys, the gospel is not popular. So when you see rapid growth, when you see a ton of people, there may be a problem. When you see big churches, there may be a problem. And I'm not against the large, large mega church. But the gospel should offend you day in and day out. John 6, remember what happened to the large crowd that Jesus was preaching to. He started preaching some hard messages and guess what? Most of the crowd deserted him. They all left. They were like, nah, you're crazy, Jesus. I ain't trying to hear that. I'm out. Notice Jesus says, repent. Repentance is the battle cry for every Christian. Turn from your sin every day. It's not just enough just to move in another direction. If we don't acknowledge our sin as sin and intentionally turn in the opposite direction from our sin, there is no restoration. 
Guys, repent. Kill your sin. A change of attitude that leads to a change in behavior. Ask yourself, are you being transformed? Are you different than you were yesterday? Verses 4 through 5. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. Individually, what about the ones who will wear white garments? Guys, white garments refer to the purity of the people of God in their works. It says they are worthy. This is the only time in the book of Revelation that this phrase is used to speak of followers of Jesus. It normally only references Jesus, the only worthy one. It says, you have only a few who have not soiled their garments. Only a few. Remember what Jesus said about the few. Wide is the road that leads to destruction and many will find it. Narrow is the road that leads to life and few find it. Many are called, but few are chosen. Few means few. A small amount. Why? Because following Jesus is not for everyone. People would rather be to cling to this world than, than to follow this path that leads to life. So what is Jesus referring to here when he speaks of these, these few individuals? Is it that these individuals did something to earn this spot? No. He did nothing to earn this spot. We deserve death. Because of what Jesus did, we're, we're, we're in, in right standing. It's because the Spirit of God rests on us. Our garments are not soiled and we are clean before God because of what Jesus did. Guys, there are many that think they're clean, but they're really not. But just like any church, no matter how ungodly churches are, there will always be a few real followers of Jesus in every church. Even in Joel Osteen's church. Notice that Jesus makes us a promise here. There are some people in the church who are saved, but most are not. This is what Jesus is saying to the church in Sardis. But those who are saved, you are clean. Your name will never be blotted out. Why? Because he not only saves us, but he keeps us and will confess your name in front of his father. He will be proud of us. Saints, if you're truly in Christ, trust that Jesus will keep you. He won't let us go no matter what. Verse 6. Wrapping this up, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Again, here we are with this urgent message from Jesus. We must hear and we must listen to the Spirit and understand. What does this mean to us today? All of us have the same tendency to be liked by our culture, to be respected by our culture. And the evidence of that is that we want more people around us. We don't want to be lonely, so we compromise. We begin to think that whatever draws more people in is the right thing. Guys, that's the wrong answer. We don't have to be against people or the mission of spreading love, but we can't compromise the message of the gospel in order to attract people. We live in a culture that is offended by what we hold near and dear to our hearts when it comes to Jesus, primarily the gospel of Jesus. We live in a culture where people are offended by the gospel. Even people who call themselves Christians are offended by the gospel. We know people are, are definitely offended by the implications of the gospel. And this goes for believers and unbelievers. You start talking about what the gospel means to people. And the way that you live your life. And all of a sudden you're on the outside looking in. And we don't like that. And I just want to challenge parents because I'm a parent. This challenged me. How does this compromise affect our parenting? How does it bleed into the way that we parent our kids? 
It does because all we all love to be applauded for the way that our kids behave, don't we? So we tend to do what we tend to do is we we focus on children's outward behavior. We focus on the outside of the cup. They would just behave and use their manners and and put up a good showing. We're good, right? But what we tend to do is focus on behavior modification instead of focusing on the root of their behavior, the inside of the cup. You know what our culture has created? You know what it means to be a really good kid? That you're just not outwardly rebellious. And there are parents who say this about their kids because they don't, they don't want to cause problems. They don't want their kids to embarrass them. Meanwhile, they don't know the real Jesus. They look good on the outside, but inside they're dead because parents fail to focus on what is most important, the heart. In our culture, that's all that matters, outward behavior. Good job. Your kids grew up and never started any trouble, but and they, and they were good kids. Yet they're utterly bankrupt on the inside and have zero idea who God is. And they grow up and leave your house and they leave God altogether. Why? Because they never experienced the real God. Does that not terrify you? How do we know when we're doing this right? When everyone hates us? I mean, I don't know about that. I mean, we should be concerned when all people speak well of us, but we should also be concerned when all people speak evil of us. As Christians, we shouldn't be out trying to cause conflict and rejection. There is a way to share the gospel that is right in a way that is, is wrong. If everyone says you're obnoxious, then you're not a faithful witness. You're, you're just obnoxious. No one wants to be around us as we share the gospel. We're, we're not faithful witnesses. If we're constantly turning people away, that does not commend the gospel. So what do we do? We share the whole counsel of God, the true gospel, inspired by the spirit of God, not your fleshly spirit. You preach the book. And we preach the book following the spirit of Jesus, not our flesh. You do nothing for God on your own power because it will be fleshly. You are boldly loving in the way you share. We don't back down, but we never go out of our way to offend people. Share the gospel and it will do the offending on its own. You don't have to add to it. I always say, just let the lion out of the cage and it will do what it does. The lion doesn't need your help. The lion just will destroy hearts everywhere. Change hearts. Lion, that's the, that's the book. Preach the book. Preach the book. Word for word and don't apologize for it. People have a problem with what the book says. Guys, you lovingly tell them, take that up with the creator of the universe. I'm just loving you and telling you. Your house is burning down. You don't know it. I'm knocking on the door telling you to get out. If you don't want to get out, okay, fine. I'll, I'll move on. Don't accuse me of ramming cramming my religion down your throat. No, I'm loving you and sharing truth, guys. And that, as a believers, that's what we're called to do. My friends, this is all for this week's episode of Straight Talk with Salim. And I had to create a part three of this series uh, or of this, um, the letters to the churches, part three, because I couldn't fit uh, the rest of of of, um, of of the the next two churches in this episode because it would go too long. So next week, episode five, we'll get into part three and the final part of of letters to the churches. We'll touch on the the church of 
Philadelphia, and we'll we'll touch on the well. We're going to do a deep dive through the Church of Laodicea, which is going to be amazing. So bring your thinking caps. We need one more week to get through this part, this three part um, message, as it's just rich and it's challenging, and, and we all need to be reminded of this wisdom. So, my friends, until next time, you guys take care. My friends, thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of Straight Talk with Salim. Remember that I love you with the love of Christ and I implore you to just passionately pursue Jesus with everything you have.